Good evening. What a pleasure it is to see so many of you here on a Wednesday night. You know, somebody said it was Thursday night out there. And they're right. Because biblically, this is Thursday night. Because the night comes before the day. It's good to be here once again at 3 a.m. for camp meeting. It's a very, very special time. I've been looking forward to it. Before we uh, study God's Word this evening, however, we want to ask for the Lord's special blessing. And so I invite you along with me to bow your heads reverently as we pray. Our Father and our God, what a privilege it is to be here, this beautiful place. We thank you, Father, for your Word, which is a sure guide in a world that is so confused. As we look at the world, it seems to be falling apart at the seams. But we thank you that in your word you tell us that you have everything under control. You still sit on the throne and you rule in the affairs of men. We ask that you will bless us as we open the pages of your holy book. And we thank you for your presence. And we're certain of it because we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by mentioning that in the book of Revelation we have seven churches which represent seven periods in the history of the Christian church. I'd like to begin by reading a statement that we find in the book Acts of the Apostles page 585 where Ellen White describes the seven churches and their specific meaning. This is what she says. The names of the seven churches are symbolic of the church in different periods of the Christian era. The number seven indicates completeness and is symbolic of the fact that the messages extend to the end of time, while the symbols used reveal the condition of the church at different periods in the history of the world. So clearly the Spirit of Prophecy tells us here that the seven churches represent seven consecutive periods in the history of the Christian church from apostolic times till the very end of time. Now it's interesting to notice that Ellen White is not alone in this concept because most conservative evangelical scholars agree that the seven churches represent seven periods of church history. I'd just like to read a statement by one of those scholars so that you can see that this is not unique to Ellen White. Now I'm going to read from someone with whom Ellen White dis disagrees probably 99.99% .99 of the time. <laughs> his name is Hal Lindsey. And in his book, Vanished into Thin Air, page 276, Hal Lindsey said this, which is correct. I believe, along with many scholars, that these seven letters were not only written to seven literal churches with real problems, but also that they have a prophetic application to church history. I believe that these seven churches were selected and arranged 
by our omniscient Lord because they had problems and characteristics that would prophesy seven stages of history through which the church universal would pass. Very similar to what we read from Acts of the Apostles, page 585. And Hal Lindsey is not the only one. There are many, many other scholars that I could read that believe that the seven churches represent seven periods of church history from the days of the Apostles till the end of time. Now evangelical Protestant scholars believe that the church of Ephesus represents the apostolic church. They believe that the church of Smyrna represents the church that was persecuted during the period of the Roman emperors. They believe that the church of Pergamum represents the church during the period when uh, apostasy entered the church, darkness entered the church in the times of Emperor Constantine. They believe that the church of Thyatira represents the church during the period of papal supremacy, the period of the Middle Ages, the, the Dark Ages, if you please. They believe that the church of Sardis represents the Protestant Reformation. Believe it or not, not only Adventist writers, but also non-Adventist evangelicals have believed that. Now when you get to Philadelphia and Laodicea, they become a little fuzzier as to what it applies to. But virtually all who believe the seven churches represent seven periods of church history agree that Ephesus is the apostolic church, Smyrna is the persecuted church by the Roman emperors, Pergamum is the church of the days of Constantine, Thyatira is the church of papal supremacy, and Sardis is the church of the Protestant Reformation. Now as I've studied the seven churches, I've come to a very important conclusion. And that is that the seven churches are to Revelation what Daniel 2 is to the book of Daniel. Now Daniel 2 is foundational to all of the book. The book of Daniel builds upon chapter 2. And I believe that the same is true about the seven churches. The seven churches provide the foundational prophecy of the book of Revelation. It gives us the skeleton or the basic chronological structure for the rest of the book. If you please, it gives us the framework upon which the book of Revelation in its entirety presents itself. Now this evening we are going to begin our four-part study with one of the seven churches, the church of Thyatira. Now the church of Thyatira is the fourth church in the sequence. Before we study the church of Thyatira, however, we need to take a look at some principles that will guide us in our study. You see, in scripture you really have four stages to Elijah. And Elijah is linked with the message to the church of Thyatira. The first stage of Elijah is the historical Elijah in the Old Testament who was called to speak to literal Israel. The second Elijah, or the second stage of Elijah, is John the Baptist. And we'll be studying John the Baptist a little bit later on in this series. The third stage, which is the one that we're going to take a look at tonight, is the stage of Elijah during the 1260 years, during the period of the church of Thyatira. And the fourth stage is the end time Elijah, the Elijah that will exist and be alive when Jesus comes, if you please. So there are actually four stages to the Elijah prophecy.
Now, the first two Elijahs are literal individuals. And they have three literal enemies, personal enemies. The last two Elijahs are not individuals. The individuals uh, represent worldwide movements and worldwide systems or powers. In other words, you're dealing with type and anti-type. Elijah in the Old Testament and John the Baptist in the New Testament become symbolic individuals along with their enemies of the Elijah during the 1260 years and the end time Elijah. But at the end time, Elijah is not an individual. Elijah is a movement. And his three enemies are not individuals. His three enemies represent global, worldwide systems. Now there are four main protagonists in the story of Elijah. The first protagonist is a determined and strong-willed harlot woman whose name is Jezebel. The second protagonist of the story is a weak and easy, easily influenced king whose name was Ahab. The third protagonist, or they, we could say protagonists of the story, are apostate false prophets that did the bidding of this harlot Jezebel. And of course the fourth protagonist was none less than Elijah who was called by God to denounce this union of the king with Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. Now it's very important to realize that whenever Elijah appears in scripture he never appears alone. Whenever Elijah appears, he always appears in bad company. In other words, his three enemies appear with him. Whether it's the Old Testament Elijah, whether it's John the Baptist, whether it's the Elijah during the 1260 years, or the very end time Elijah, whenever Elijah appears in scripture, his three enemies appear along with him. And so in the four stages of Elijah we're going to have to find a determined and strong-willed harlot woman, we're going to have to find a weak and easily, easily influenced king, we're going to have to find false prophets who do the bidding of this woman, and we are going to have to find Elijah who is called to rebuke this unity of this threefold alliance. Now I would like us to begin by reading the message to the church of Thyatira. It's found in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 18 through 29 and I'm going to read it slowly because it has several very important details. Remember that Thyatira is the church that exists uh, during the period of the Dark Ages, during the period of papal supremacy. That is the key point that we want to remember. Now notice what we find beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, now here comes one of the protagonists, you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, let me ask you, can this be literal Jezebel? No, because Jezebel had been dead for 800 years. 
at this point. So this cannot be literal Jezebel that arises in the time of the church of Thyatira. So it says, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, other, other versions translate fornication, and eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, she introduces fornication and idolatry. In the Old Testament this is literal. People bow before literal images and she's committing literal fornication with the king. It continues saying here in verse 21, notice, and I gave her time. The word time here is the Greek word chronos, where we get chronology from. So I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality or of her fornication and she did not repent. Therefore notice what God does. Because she didn't repent after God gave her this time, indeed I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery or fornication with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And then it tells us, I will kill her children with death. Interesting, all sorts of interesting details that we find in this passage. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But now notice that in this church there's a faithful remnant. Verse 24 says, Now to you I say, and to the rest. That word rest really is the same word that is translated remnant in Revelation 12:17. It's the Greek word loipos. In other words, it could be translated, Now to you I say, and to the remnant in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, in other words, as many as are against fornication and against idolatry, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so because we have Jezebel in the church of Thyatira, that would tell us that we also have to have whom? There also has to be the king. There also has to be Elijah. And there also have to be the false prophets. That's right. Because when one of the protagonists appear, appears, all of the other protagonists appear along with that one. So we know that in the period of the church of Thyatira, Jezebel appears with all of the other protagonists of the story. Now, in the Old Testament, Jezebel is a literal pagan priestess who links up with a literal king and used his executive authority to introduce a mixture of God worship and Baal worship in literal Israel. She had a group of literal false prophets who extended her influence in the literal geographical territory of Israel. 
In other words, the story in the Old Testament is a story that deals with literal individuals in literal Israel. However, in the church of Thyatira, what was literal in the Old Testament now becomes symbolic of movements, it becomes symbolic of systems, of global systems. So in the church of Thyatira, which is right in the middle of the history of the Christian church, we have a woman, symbolically speaking, which represents an apostate church, that blends paganism with Christianity. She links up with the kings of the earth, not just with one king. And she has spiritual children that at some point was, were born to her and she persecutes those who disagree with her points of view. And so what was literal in the Old Testament now becomes symbolic and it becomes global. Now let me just summarize some of the details of the story from the Old Testament. Tomorrow morning we're going to take a look at the story as it appears in the Old Testament which is really the root to all of the other Elijah passages that we find in Scripture. Let's just review the main points before we draw a parallel between the days of Elijah and what happened during the church of Thyatira. The harlot Jezebel, as we've noticed, fornicated with the king and used his executive authority to extend her counterfeit religion and to persecute those who were opposed to her agenda. That's the first point. The second point is that she was involved in the occult because in 2nd Kings chapter 9 and verse 22 it says that she was involved in witchcraft. In other words she was involved in the occult. Furthermore we notice that she blended the worship of God with the worship of Baal. In other words, it was a mixture of God worship, of genuine worship, with counterfeit worship. She instituted a false sacrificial system. Remember that the altar of the Lord was torn down in the days of Elijah? Because they had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten that, that the victim represented the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and they were offering sacrifices to Baal. Furthermore, we know that in the days of Elijah she was leading the people to break the commandments of God. Because when Elijah met Ahab, Ahab says, oh, it's so, so you're the one who troubles Israel. And Elijah said, no, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have done it because you have forsaken what? You have forsaken the commandments of God. The commandments of God were involved. Also false worship was involved. Because we're told clearly in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30 through 33 that Jezebel implemented the false worship of the sun god Baal. We also know that she had a group of false prophets that did her bidding. And we know that Elijah was called to unmask this counterfeit religion at the risk of his own life. Now let me just read you some texts that we find in Scripture that describe some of these details that I've mentioned. 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 22, speaking about Jezebel, gives us some interesting details. It says, Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace? As long as the harlotries, notice that Jezebel was a harlot, 
the harlotries of your mother, notice he's called the mother, the harlotries of your mother Jezebel, and her what? And her witchcraft are many. Do you know what doctrine is at the foundation of witchcraft? The immortality of the soul is at the root of witchcraft. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. We read this before when we read the entire passage. But notice what we're told there about Jezebel. It says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, that really is the word to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, she introduced fornication and idolatry. Now this is finally fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Notice Revelation chapter 17 verses 1 and 2 and then we'll read also verse 5. Revelation 17, 1 and 2 and then we'll jump to verse 5. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Of the what? Ah, now we're in the book of Revelation of the great harlot who sits on many waters and now notice with whom the kings of the earth committed what? Ah, so there's, a, there's the kings of the earth that are involved and there's a harlot that is involved. Notice what it continues saying. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, and then what is she called? The mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Uh, does she have children? She most certainly does. In fact, we read in Revelation chapter 2 that God was going to kill her children. So in other words, we have Jezebel fornicating with the kings. She's called the mother, so she has children. And I would ask, do you think that Elijah also is involved in this story, the period of the church of Thyatira? Absolutely. Let's examine this. Because of the apostasy, that was taking place in Israel, God told Elijah to announce that there would be no rain. Notice 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. We're going to go now from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We're going to examine a parallel between what happened in the days of Elijah and what happened during the period of the church of Thyatira, this period of the Dark Ages. It says in 1 Kings 17 verse 1, and keep your finger there in 1 Kings uh, King 17 and also in Revelation because we're going to be going back and forth. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no, notice the expression, no dew or rain these years except at my word. No dew and no rain. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 6. It's speaking about this period of the 1260 years in context. And it says there in Revelation 11 verse 6, speaking about the two witnesses, These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So notice in the days of Elijah, the heavens are shut, no dew and no rain. And we find in the book of Revelation that the heavens are shut and there is no dew and no rain. And that is during the 1260 year prophecy.
Now the question is, what was the reason for the scarcity of rain? 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 tells us what the reason was. It says there in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 13, God is speaking, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What was the reason that God gave for the land having famine? It was because His very own people were in apostasy. Now remember that in the Old Testament we're dealing with literal rain. But in the period of the, of the Christian church, this apostate period of the Christian church, we're dealing with symbolic rain. Now of course the question is, what does rain symbolize on a broader scale in relationship to the church of Thyatira? Well, let's go in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 2 and examine what the rain represents symbolically or spiritually because during the Middle Ages we're dealing with a symbolic Elijah, we're dealing with a system. Jezebel represents a system. Elijah represents a group of people. The daughters represent a group of people. The king is no longer a little, literal king. The king represents all of the kings over which this system rules. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 2. Let my teaching, some versions say let my doctrine, drop as the rain. So what does rain represent? It represents doctrine and God is speaking here. Let my teaching or doctrine drop as rain, as the rain. My speech distill as the what? The dew. So what does, what does the rain represent? It represents God's teaching, it represents God's speaking or God's speech as raindrops of the tender herb and as showers on the grass. This is the reason why in Amos chapter 8 verses 11 and 12 we're, we're told what happens when God causes a famine in the land, when there is no rain. Amos 8, 11 and 12 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not be able to find it. So what does rain represent symbolically during the period of the Dark Ages? It represents God's teaching. It represents God's word. A famine for God's word, if you please. Now how long did this apostasy last where there was no rain because of the apostasy of Israel. Let's go to the book of James chapter 5 and verse 17 and examine the historical root first of all. Let's examine the Old Testament story. We're going back and forth. James chapter 5 and verse 17. Here we're told, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for how long? for three years and six months. Now is that an interesting, is that an important uh, figure or number? Does it have anything to do with the period of papal supremacy? Absolutely. 
Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3. Chapter 11 and verse 3 where it's speaking once again about this period of papal supremacy. Revelation 11 verse 3 says, God is speaking, I will give to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for how long? 1,260 days clothed with sackcloth. How long were the witnesses going to prophesy? 1,260 days. How many years is that? How many symbolic years? It represents 1,260 years. Now the Bible refers to it with different terminology than 1,260. Let's notice Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, the parallel prophecy. There we have a different way of expressing the same time period. It says there in Daniel 7.25, a text that probably most of you can repeat from memory. Speaking about the papacy, it says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into His hand, for how long? For a time, and times, and half a time. How long is that? How many years is that? Three and a half years. Are we dealing with literal years, or are we dealing with symbolic years? It's not literal years, it's symbolic years. Jezebel is symbolic, Elijah is symbolic, the children are symbolic. The king represents something much larger, represents the kings of the earth. And so the time period in the Old Testament is literal, three and a half literal years during the period of papal supremacy, it was a symbolic period of time. Now let me ask you, did God give Jezebel the opportunity to repent in the Old Testament story? Yes! God sent Elijah with the purpose of admonishing Israel and giving them the message so that Jezebel would repent. But after three and a half years she was all the more determined to destroy God's prophet. Now notice Revelation chapter 2 and verse 21 in relationship to the church of Thyatira. It says there, Revelation 2.21, God is speaking, and I gave her what? Time to repent of her sexual immorality or fornication, and she did not what? Repent. How much time did God give the church during the Middle Ages, during the Dark Ages, so that she would repent? 1,260 years, or time, times, and the dividing of time. It's interesting, the word that is used here for time is the Greek word chronos, where we get the word chronology from. God gave her chronological time. He gave her a precise period of 1260 years, time times and the dividing of time for her to repent, and she did not. Now was there a remnant in the Old Testament story? A faithful remnant that did not bow the knee to Baal? Absolutely. Notice 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18. Second King, oh, first Kings rather, chapter 19 and verse 18. Here God is speaking to Elijah because Elijah is saying, I'm the only one who is left. And God tells Elijah, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So did God have a faithful remnant that did, that did not worship Baal, and that had to hide from the wrath of Jezebel. Absolutely. Now, was there a faithful remnant in the church of Thyatira as well? Notice Revelation chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. 
we, we mentioned this when we read the passage. It says in Revelation 2.24, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira. That's not a very good translation, to the rest. It's the same word that is used in Revelation 12.17 where it says that the dragon was angry with the remnant of her seed. So a better translation is a remnant, that which is left, that which remains. And so God is saying to the church of Thyatira, Now to you I say, and to the remnant in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, in other words, those who don't follow what the harlot teaches, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. God had a remnant during this period of time, times, and the dividing of time. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13 verse 7, they are called the saints of the Most High, as well as in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. In Revelation chapter 12, this remnant is referred to, a referred to as a pure woman, a woman who is clothed with the sun. In other words, God had a faithful remnant during this period that played the role of Elijah, so to speak. Now who was blamed for the calamities that fell upon Israel in the Old Testament? Elijah was blamed, of course. Notice 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 10, and then we'll read also verse 17. 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 10 As the Lord your God lives there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you this is a servant that is telling this to Elijah you have been hunted everywhere in the kingdom and when they said he is not here he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you in other words people had to swear an oath that they had not seen Elijah because he was hunted everywhere in the kingdom because Jezebel wanted to kill him. Notice also what we're told in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Who was blamed for the calamities? It was Elijah who was blamed. Elijah was hated for telling it like it is. Now did Elijah have to flee to the wilderness? Oh, he sure did have to flee to the wilderness. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 3, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 3, God is speaking to Elijah and he says, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith which flows into the Jordan. So Elijah had to flee to the wilderness and he had to hide. How about the faithful church during the time, times, and dividing of time? Did they have to flee? Notice Revelation chapter 16 uh, and verse 6 and also verse 14. Revelation 12 verse 6 and then we'll read verse 14. Then the woman fled into where? Into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And then verse 14, but the woman was given to wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. And so you have God's church during the Old Testament period fleeing in the person of Elijah and hiding from the wrath of Jezebel. And so you have also during this period of time, times, and dividing of time, God's faithful church, the woman fleeing to the wilderness. 
Now notice also that when Elijah went to hide, who fed him? God fed him. God not only prepared a place for him in the wilderness, but God also fed him. Notice 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 4, and then we'll also read verse 6. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 4, it says, And I will be, and it will be, that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Who was it that fed Elijah? God, through the ravens. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now how about in Revelation? Who fed God's faithful church that fled to the wilderness? We already read it. Let's read it again. Revelation chapter 12 verse 6 and also verse 14. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. See? Just like with Elijah. That they should notice that they should what? Feed her there 1,260 days. And then verse 14 but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and have a time from the presence of the serpent. Are you seeing the parallels between the days of Elijah and the period of the church during the dark ages? If we know what happened in the days of Elijah we can know what happened during this period of church history. Now was Jezebel a murderess? Was she a bloodthirsty tyrant who used the king to accomplish her purposes? Absolutely. And the king was a wimp. Listen up folks, in all of the Elijah stories that we're going to study, there's a wimpish king, there's a strong-willed harlot, the harlot has false prophets or daughters, and Elijah rebukes this triple union and as a result, the Triple Union hates God's prophet and seeks him out to attempt to destroy him. Notice 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 4 where we're told about Jezebel. It says, For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Once again, they're hiding in a cave, and God is feeding them as they hide there, because Jezebel is, is killing and destroying the prophets of the Lord. In fact, Jezebel was so angry with Elijah, that after uh, the prophets of Baal were defeated on Mount Carmel, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Does the, does the harlot in the book of Revelation also shed the blood of God's people? Notice Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, did Jezebel extend her religion by herself or did she has, have some emissaries who helped to extend it? Actually, 
it was through a counterfeit priesthood, it was through false prophets that she was able to extend her influence and her power and her religion. In fact, we know that she was the one who fed the false prophets. And you don't bite the hand that feeds you, by the way. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 19, we're told, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat where? Who eat at Jezebel's table. So you have, you have a group of false prophets that do the bidding of Jezebel. Now let me ask you, in the book of Revelation, do you have a power, a false prophet that does the bidding of the beast? We'll study this in our last, in our last study together. Yes, we have a beast that rises from the earth, it has two horns like a lamb, and it does everything to please the first beast. It raises an image to the first beast. It commands everyone to worship the first beast. It imposes the mark of the first beast. It commands everyone to follow the first beast. In other words, there is a false prophet in the book of Revelation that extends the religion of the beast. But you know, in Revelation 13, the relationship is described as the beast and the false prophet. But in Revelation chapter 17, it describes this relationship as the mother and her daughters. Now, as we study this, this is going to become clearer and clearer that really the beast using the false prophet to accomplish its purposes is the same as in Revelation 17, the harlot using her daughters to accomplish her purposes. Now, did this uh, harlot receive a deadly wound during the 1260 years? Was she thrown on her sickbed? Yes. In fact, let's read it. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, the, the lexicon or dictionary, Arndt and Gingrich, uh, page 436, describes this word sickbed as to lay someone on a sickbed, to strike her with an illness, a lingering illness, as a divine punishment. Now did this sister, was this system thrown into a sick bed at the end of its period of dominion? Yes. Was she thrown into great tribulation? Yes, I believe that this is describing actually the French Revolution. At the end of her period of dominion, everything was thrown upside down. The royalty, as well as, as the papacy, were, were uh, sought to be destroyed by the people in France. In other words, this is exactly what happened according to the prophecy. Now does the harlot have children? She most certainly does. It says in Revelation 2 verse 23, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. Interesting that Jezebel the harlot had children. During the 1260 years, she also had children. In Revelation chapter 17, she is called the harlot who is the mother of harlots. Now the question is, which children were born from the Roman Catholic papacy? Can you tell me? The Protestant churches that believe that the dead are not dead, 
that Sunday is the day that we're supposed to keep, that Sunday is the day of worship, etc. Let me read you the words of John the 23rd at the beginning of the Ecumenical Vatican II Council as he addressed Protestants who were there observing. He said, The Roman Catholic Church wishes to be an affectionate, kind, and patient mother. She is moved by compassion and goodness towards her alienated children. That's what Pope John XXIII said. Pope Paul VI said, speaking to the Protestants at the Council, because of their position, separated brethren are the object of deep and tender affection on the part of the Mother Church. On the part of the Mother Church. It is a love that feels grief and sadness, the love of a heart wounded by estrangement, because the estrangement prevents brethren from enjoying so many privileges and rights and makes them lose so much grace. But perhaps for this very reason, its love is all the deeper and more burning. Those were the words of Pope Paul VI. So we have a parallel between what occurred in the days of Elijah, literal individuals in literal Israel, and what happened symbolically to the church during the symbolic period of time times and the dividing of time. But folks, this is not the conclusion of the story. The Middle Ages Elijah was not the last Elijah. The conclusion of the story has not been written. Jezebel did not come to an end at the end of the 1260 years. The daughters did not come to an end. The great and terrible of the day of the Lord did not come. Elijah was not translated to heaven. The final chapter of this story still has to be fulfilled when the deadly wound of the harlot Jezebel is healed. And God promises that he is going to send Elijah once more. Not a person, but a worldwide movement to perform the same work that Elijah did in the Old Testament and the Elijah in the wilderness did during the 1260 years. In Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 we find the prophecy, Behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. You see the harlot Jezebel has two stages of existence. She ruled for 1260 years and the story of Elijah took place symbolically during that period. At the end of that period she received a deadly wound. But prophecy tells us that her deadly wound is going to be what? Is going to be healed. So Jezebel will live again. So if Jezebel is going to live again, would we expect the kings of the earth to fornicate with Jezebel when she rises to power? Yes. We, would we expect her children to join with her in imposing a counterfeit religion? Would we expect God to raise up an Elijah to proclaim that God's lie is binding, that we should worship God the Creator on His Holy Sabbath? A, a, a movement that will reach the world with the message of God for these last days? Absolutely. You see the end time Elijah represents God's remnant church. It's not one individual. It is a remnant of people on a worldwide scale that will proclaim God's message to the world with power and great glory as we're told in Revelation chapter 18 and verses 1 through 4. And so the only thing that remains to be seen is for the harlot 
to recover from her deadly wound. And then we will see a repetition of what happened during the 1260 years, during the time, times, and dividing of time. You know, the message to Thyatira ends by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, we are that end time church that God has called for a time such as this. The question is, will we, God's remnant people, answer that call that God has made? I pray to God that we will. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.